you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us today from UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, infectious disease physician and assistant clinical professor, Paul Adamson. Dr. Adamson, very good to have you with us today. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first of all about what we have now as the second Southern California confirmed case of Omicron. This is a student who apparently had traveled to the East Coast. Nonetheless, Delta is the driver of of, um, the overwhelming majority of current cases and certainly of hospitalization. So given these first few days of, of Omicron, what are your thoughts about its likely spread in competition with Delta? Yeah, uh, I I just saw that uh, case was reported by um, L.A. County here. So we have two cases. Um, You know, I think we are going to see more cases of Omicron pop up, um, you know, definitely here in in Los Angeles, as we're seeing kind of around the country. Um, I I think it sort of remains to be seen um, how well it competes against Delta. As you mentioned, over 99 percent of the infections right now are due to Delta. So I think, you know, Delta is still the kind of main uh, 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 variant that we're trying to fight. And so I think we need to keep that in mind. And obviously, we're going to learn more about Omicron as we go on. And we'll probably see some more cases because I do think there's, um, you know, some transmission going on in the U.S. It's just hard to know how much is happening just yet. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the chief medical advisor to President Biden, was on CNN yesterday and said that although Omicron appears to be spreading rapidly, that it appears it may be less dangerous than Delta. And uh, can you explain a bit why that might be? Why why could it be both potentially more uh, contagious than the Delta variant, but causing milder symptoms? Yeah, no, I, I, it's a good question. I think, you know, there there's a couple of things we still don't know that we're still trying to learn about this um, variant as it um, has kind of emerged in the last few weeks. Um, I think the first question, as you mentioned, is, is we don't yet know how transmissible it is. Um, and I think it has some mutations that are very concerning um, that we saw with the alpha and the beta variants um, that made them more transmissible, meaning that they could um, kind of infect more people. Um, and, you know, I, but I think the other thing we don't really know yet is how virulent it is. So like how much is it um, or how severe disease does it cause once it causes an infection? And I still think it's too early to say on both of those, but I think what Dr. Fauci was saying is there's some 
preliminary reports out um, suggesting that though cases are increasing, which would suggest that perhaps it's more transmissible um, uh, with the increased number of cases, they're not seeing a increase in the level of um, hospitalizations or, um, you know, among people hospitalized requiring more oxygen or more um, ICU level care, um, as you would expect if it was a very um, severe um, variant. But I think right now it's really too early to say that it's really preliminary data and we don't have um, all the information to make any sort of definitive conclusions on that. Um, what? Yeah. With that caveat, though, if and I'm, I'm just using capital if, uh, if if it in fact does produce on average milder symptoms, but is more contagious than the Delta variant, is it possible that Omicron could edge out Delta to some respect, perhaps not entirely, but but in some respect, um outcompete Delta and make people less sick at the same time. And so could it be a net positive theoretically? Well, that's a, it's a very nuanced question. I appreciate that. I, you know, I think there's a lot that goes on um, with regard to uh, transmission. Um, the transmission depends on the virus itself. So as you mentioned, you know, it's possible if it causes less um, symptoms that, um, you know, perhaps it allows it to be more transmissible, but with fewer symptoms means that the host doesn't get as sick, which, you know, potentially would be a net positive. But it's it's really hard to say. And I think that it's also possible that, you know, it could cause more milder symptoms in people who are vaccinated, but, you know, might cause more severe um, infections in people who are unvaccinated if, in fact, it is more transmissible. Um, And so I think there's a lot that goes into play in terms of transmission and, and severity. Um, and that also determines on or is also determined by, you know, a population. So is a population made up of, you know, younger, healthier people. So you think of like a college um, setting or is it, um, you know, a skilled nursing facility where people tend to be older and have more medical conditions? Um, what's the vaccination rate in the community? So I think all of these things sort of factor into um, transmission as well as um, severity. I just don't think we have all the, the answers about this yeah. yet. We're talking with UCLA, uh, both professor and infectious disease physician at the Geffen School of Medicine, Dr. Paul Adamson. And he's taking your questions about COVID-19, about testing, about variants, uh, about vaccines. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can tweet at AirTalk. Please include your location in your tweet. You can post on the AirTalk Facebook page or you can email Email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. And please include your location as well as your first name. Uh, you were just kind of referencing this, and, and uh, I was going to follow up by asking you if it might be that we're still in the cases that we're seeing of Omicron, these are largely unvaccinated people, so their symptoms have been manageable. But if Omicron starts making significant progress into the unvaxxed population, it, is, that, is that the bigger fear here? Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, the data that we've been seeing come out of um, South Africa and anecdotal reports both around the U.S. and some in Europe, they tended to be in, in younger, um, healthier. I think there's a case of the uh, Portuguese soccer team, younger, healthier populations. 
Um, and the cases we've had in the U.S., a lot of them have been in vaccinated folks. So like you mentioned, um, we know from uh, the other variants as well as, um, you know, even the initial um, uh, virus strain um, that the vaccines work really well against preventing infections. Um, and even in people who get infected after getting vaccinated, we know that symptoms tend to be much more mild in those cases as well. So, so that's why, we, you know, we don't want to read too much into these Omicron um, you know, anecdotal reports just yet, because as you mentioned, they've, a lot of them have been in vaccinated people and the symptoms have been mild. Does that mean that it's going to be mild in unvaccinated people? My suspicion is that it is probably not. It's probably going to be more severe in vaccinated or sorry, in unvaccinated people compared to vaccinated people, as we've seen with every other um, strain of this uh, of disease. John in Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles, says, uh, my question's about antibody testing. My experience in a clinical study is that they checked my blood every three months to measure my antibody levels. After six months, I had zero antibodies left. So uh, will widely available antibody testing ever be available for the public? In other words, to get the kinds of you know, much quicker feedback that John got by being in a clinical trial. Yeah, I think, um, well, antibody, so antibodies, antibody tests measure the amount of antibody somebody has, or sorry, they don't measure the amount. They measure if somebody has um, a positive antibody to either a infection um, or uh, vaccination. But as John mentioned, those tests aren't perfect. And even though you've been vaccinated, you might have immunity against um, uh, the virus the test might not detect antibodies. And so therefore, they might look like you don't have immunity when in fact you do. So the tests are, are somewhat uh, difficult to, to use in clinical practice. And we actually don't use them in, in a lot of cases to determine uh, immunity to um, uh, either prior infection or to vaccines. Uh, Sarah emailed us, is there any research that has answered the question why people with similar immune systems can all have different reactions to the virus and with some potentially not getting it despite being similarly exposed? I I don't think that that uh, definitive research on that has been done just yet. You know, I think the immune system is... uh, what I like to say, it's, it's beautifully complex. Uh, and, you know, the amazing thing about the immune system is so many people can have so many different types of reactions and um, responses to, you know, exposure to different bacteria or uh, vaccines or viruses, et cetera. Um, and it's really hard to predict exactly how one person on an individual level is going to um, react to, in this case, the, the vaccine. Um, but, but I think that that's why we do these large studies. So we measure the immune responses among a large population of people. And we see that, you know, we see these responses that pick up in, you know, nearly all the people that are in these vaccine trials. So I think that there is some individual variability between different people's immune systems, for sure. But we know that, you know, on a large um, population level, the vaccines, you know, are very reliable in um, providing a, a good um, 
uh, immunity to the virus. You know, Sarah has, and I didn't read this part of her question, but parenthetically, when she was mentioning similar immune system, she's talking about age and overall health, vaccine status, etc. But the point you raise, I think, is such an interesting one that our immune systems are so complex and probably not even consistent day to day, you know, based on how much sleep we got the night before. And, you know, so many, so many different, I mean, that's just an an example of what could be thousands of variables and that all of that may go into this equation as to how someone reacts to an exposure. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. I think we know that a lot of variables go into your immune system from, you know, chronic stress to sleep deprivation to, you know, uh, diet. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, And I think that's really why it's so important that, you know, people try not to make too much of these uh, one-off cases of, um, you know, initially we were talking about um, breakthrough infections. It seemed like um, people were very concerned that we were hearing about these one-off cases that uh, the vaccines weren't working, but, but, you know, it was good to remind people that we have data on, you know, hundreds of thousands and now millions of people that, that show that the vaccines do work really well. Um, and, and there is so much individual variability that can be hard to predict on a kind of individual level. Dave in Venice wanted to ask you, Dr. Adamson, about the vaccination interval. He said, I recall some scientists were saying months ago that allowing a longer time between the two shots of an mRNA vaccine is more beneficial than the usual four weeks or so. Does that also hold true between, say, a um, taking a booster, you know, after a second shot of Pfizer? Does waiting longer, Dave's asking, um, provide some benefit? Yeah, I think what Dave's referring to is is initially, I think there was a um, debate in the scientific community about whether or not it was better to have a shorter period between the first dose and the second dose of the vaccines um, uh, versus allowing the immune system a little bit more time to mature between the first dose and then giving the um, the, uh, the second dose, um, and I think there's you know some immunologic data to support that. I think, however, what we have to balance or what we had to balance at that time was deciding, um, you know, how much to let the immune system mature versus you know thinking about where we were last December and January in the midst of the worst um, part of the pandemic that we've seen so far and you know, getting people up to full immunity as quickly as they could. So it was kind of a balance between shortening the interval and getting people um, uh, immunity faster uh, versus lengthening out the the interval and perhaps giving people better immunity, but coming at risk of more infections in the interim. Yeah. Well, I I mean, even looking at uh, assessing the lasting protection from the Pfizer versus the Moderna vaccine, one of the factors that was raised there, uh, Dr. Adamson, was on um, the fact that Pfizer was a three-week interval between the two injections. Moderna did four weeks, and the thought was, well, maybe that provided somewhat more robust protection. You think that that still is a possibility? Um, I, th- I think it's a possibility that it was related to the interval. I think there was also, you know, the amount of um, of mRNA that was in the Moderna vaccine. Um, you know, so those two things might have led to some of that as well. Um, and, and, and to the, I guess, to the question about the booster shots too. I think, 
you know, we're, we're seeing that six months out, um, there is, you know, there had been some um, perhaps waning immunity, um, talking about the antibody level. Um, so that's kind of why they're recommending that extra, the extra dose now. Um, and I don't know, you know, if waiting longer, I don't think there's going to be any further enhancement of the immune system six months out versus eight months out. I think at this point, you know, yeah, bumping the immunity level will probably be the same at, you know, the six months versus eight months or 10 months out, um, you know, which is a slightly different question than that first one between the first and the second dose. We share another uh, listener question from Aaron, who emailed us. My wife and I are fully vaccinated, but we both have... Uh, we have differing feelings about vaccinating our six-year-old boy. I'm fine with it, but my wife has expressed a small amount of reluctance based on stories she's read of potential reproductive and other unknown side effects. Is there any evidence that might point to such adverse outcomes or that would dispel them? Yeah, I, I think that there's a there is a common misconception, and uh, it's actually spread quite um, widely about um, uh, potential fertility um, or reproductive complications for uh, both adults and children. And those are uh, really misconceptions. They're not true. They're not um, based in anything we know about the data um, or anything we expect knowing the vaccine. So, uh, so I would say there's really no concern um, about reproductive um, or fertility issues um, based on everything that we know about the vaccines and the data we've seen from, you know, the millions of, of uh, vaccinations we've seen across the country. So w- with something like this, and there are so many of these different claims about um, what are said to be harms of these vaccines, is there any kernel of truth or anything either from previous vaccines or anything that would sort of fuel these fears and, and get... Um, you know, people who who uh, put this on social media, who would drive them in these kinds of contentions? You know, that's a good question. I think the the, the um, among adults, there was a, a myth that spread pretty widely about fertility issues um, that seemed to be started uh, with uh, some Facebook posts in a in a group um, based in Florida, and it really spread quite widely, even to like a lot of you know mainstream uh, news media outlets. Um, I'm, I don't, there's, there's definitely no kernel of truth there. I think perhaps what one thing um, is that, you know, it's sort of hard to prove that there, you know, some people say, well, how do you know 10 years from now, there's not going to be any uh, fertility issues um, related to the vaccines. And then, you know, to that, I usually say, well, you know, we don't have 10 years of data, sure, but there's nothing about the vaccines that we would expect to cause fertility issues 10 years down the line. And also, we've, you know, based on all we know about vaccines in general, you know, we wouldn't expect any of those um, complications as well. But I think maybe that the fact that we can't prove that 10 years from now, obviously, because we don't have 10 years worth of data, yeah. it, it kind of stays in people's mind as something that, well, if you can't prove it and show me the data that 10 years from now, it won't be a problem. Then, How can I? Then it's not safe for me to take. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a really interesting point that you that you raise about that. You know, I guess for me, with any of these claims that are made about the vaccines, I want to know, well, what is what is sort of the, the theoretical way that the vaccine would have 
the described effect. So I'm trying to think in theory, how does an mRNA vaccine with its impact on the immune system potentially cause an unintended consequence in fertility? And is there any vehicle by which it could possibly do that? No, there's not. And I think, you know, initially when when people were doing studies, uh, one question that was raised is that, you know, maybe it was binding to a receptor that was, you know, more available on, um, you know, some tissue in a reproductive organ. Um, and so that maybe that was a mechanism by by which it could cause that. But but there's really no um, uh, there's no evidence that the vaccines would cause that. But but I also remind people that if if there's concern that the vaccines might do something, remember, the vaccines are producing one component of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, a spike protein that helps your body make immunity to it. And if you're if we're concerned about um, that causing um, infertility, then by that way, we would also be concerned about the virus itself and infection with the virus causing that to happen since the virus is actually presents with more of the proteins and, um, you know, it causes, you know, a, a big immune response to a bunch of other things as well. That in my mind, if you're concerned about that, then that would also be another reason to get the vaccine because, you know, the vaccine only contains the, the spike protein component of the virus and not the entire virus itself. Kathy in Pasadena asks, are people especially contagious during the incubation period of COVID-19 when you've been exposed, but you're not experiencing symptoms yet? Yeah, that's a great question. I, what we know now is that um, SARS-CoV-2 is different from a lot of other respiratory um, viruses in the sense that you can transmit the virus um, usually before you um, develop any symptoms or when your symptoms are very mild. In other viruses, we tend to have you know more transmission happening sort of at the time that you are symptomatic. But SARS-CoV-2 is different in that sense. Um, and it's usually you know a day or two um, before symptoms start. And um, you know that kind of peaks a day or two before symptoms start to the day that um, you're having symptoms is kind of the period at which you're most infectious. Of course, you can still be infectious for a longer period um, after that um, as well, but those are kind of the periods where you're most infectious. I was looking at this story, Dr. Adamson, that said um, the U.S. is averaging more than 100,000 new COVID-19 cases a day, the highest level in two months. And I have to admit, I don't pay much attention to COVID cases because I don't know what the rate of testing is and the rate of positivity. And to me, I I keep my eyes on hospitalizations and deaths. I, I just personally find that more meaningful. But how much weight do you put in average number of new cases a day? Is that something we should be looking at? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Larry. It's, it can be difficult to um, to determine exactly what that means. I think initially on in the pandemic, before we had vaccinations, you know, we could very closely track testing to hospitalizations to deaths in like a very um, kind of uh, I guess, morbid trend there. Um, but but with the vaccines, it, it really has, to some extent, not totally, but to some extent has decoupled the, um, you know, cases to um, hospitalizations and deaths. And so I think you're right. Hospitalizations are really important to follow and can be um, a good marker of, um, of how the pandemic is going for us. But I think infections can also be helpful for seeing big spikes of infections. It's probably likely that 
you know, there's a lot of transmission going on in the community. And I think it's a good reminder for us to be able to, you know, take precautions to, to reduce the spread. So I don't think they have no utility, but, um, but, but not in the same way that, you know, they were last year when we could clearly follow hospitalizations and deaths kind of tracking very closely after cases. Aaron in Santa Monica emailed us, I've been traveling a bit and now getting back home and ready to get a booster dose. I've heard it's possible to have a breakthrough infection, uh, get COVID while vaxxed, and then not have any symptoms of it. Should I get tested for COVID before getting the booster? So Aaron, in other words, wondering if she might have in her travels been exposed, but just be asymptomatic. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know of any, um, I don't think that that would be a precaution to getting um, the vaccine. I think, you know, I don't think you have, you certainly don't have to get tested before getting the vaccine um, or the booster. Sorry, if you wanted to get the booster, I would go ahead and do it. If there was some particular concern about transmission, like, you know, she just traveled and she's going to be with, you know, uh, you know, parents who are elderly, someone with immune compromising conditions, and she wanted to be tested for that reason, I think that that would be a good reason to um, perhaps get tested and make sure there's not some asymptomatic transmission going on in her case. New York City um, is imposing on all private employers, uh, regardless of size, that uh, they have to have their workers vaccinated against COVID-19. Mayor Bill de Blasio made that announcement, uh, and this comes as cases we're just talking about are are climbing. Uh, De Blasio says the mandate will take effect on December 27th, with in-person workers needing to provide proof they have received at least one dose of the vaccine. They'll not be allowed to get out of the requirement by agreeing to regular COVID-19 testing instead, which makes this, you know, more far-reaching than most of of these uh, vaccine requirements that we've seen. The measure will apply to roughly 184,000 businesses not covered by the previous vaccine mandates, which... Um, you know, were were applied earlier. Your thoughts about these vaccine mandates and not allowing for a testing in lieu of vaccine option, Dr. Adamson? Yeah, I think that, you know, I I think what the goal of these vaccine mandates are really to um, try to improve, uh, to get into the last mile of um, uh, vaccination coverage. Um, you know, I, I think vaccines are are best tool for getting out of this pandemic. They're not our only tool, but they're probably our best tool. Um, so I think anything that can be done to improve um, vaccination coverage, um, you know, will be helpful. I was just looking at the New York City um, data earlier, and it looks like about 78% of, um, of uh, eligible people there have received at least one vaccine dose, and about 70% are fully vaccinated. So they're really looking to sort of reach that last 30% of um, of folks who are uh, who have not yet been vaccinated, um, and I think vaccine mandates have been shown to increase vaccination rates. Uh, also, wanted to ask you a question from a, a listener: um, If you are infected with the Omicron variant, would that provide future protection against the Delta variant, or would you still be susceptible to that? if it was the Omicron variant that infected you? Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I don't, I mean, we definitely don't have any data about that just yet. I think 
what we've seen from other strains, um, you know, and trying to extrapolate some information there is that, you know, maybe if you had an infection with one strain, there would be some um, immunity that would probably cover for a, you know, kind of a closely rel- uh, a closely related strain. But again, the, the kind of the issue we have with, with um, immunity that occurs through an infection is that we don't really know how robust the immunity is. You know, people have different severities of disease. Um, and we also don't know exactly how long that immunity lasts. Like we were talking about earlier, everyone's immune system is different. And so some people might have immunity that lasts a very short period of time on the order of, you know, two or three months. Some people might have immunity that lasts a bit longer. It's really hard to predict that. Um, and in the same way, it's hard to know if one strain provides, um, you know, reliable coverage for another strain. Um, so we definitely don't have information about Omicron, but that's kind of the information we have based on prior strains that we've seen. Anne in Venice says, if someone has had a single shot of J&J and then received a Moderna full shot later, would it make more sense for that person to get a second, uh, to get another uh, full Moderna, Moderna shot or, or a booster of Pfizer at this point? You know, I'm not sure. There's some, there's some, uh, I think with the, the caller's question is about, um, you know, this mixing and matching and could there be some hybrid immunity from getting um, the different vaccines? And I think there is some data to support that. I'm not sure, you know, getting the Johnson & Johnson and then Moderna, I'm not sure there's going to be so much more benefit of getting a Pfizer as the booster dose um, as opposed to getting Moderna or J&J. I think the important thing is that you know, they're getting a booster dose if they're eligible, and that will boost um, the antibody immunity and um, help with neutralization of the virus and hopefully prevent um, a, a future infection. Now, I, I I think, and maybe I'm misreading what Anne is asking, but so a first a J&J shot, then the second shot is a full Moderna. Then she's talking about a booster to that, but I... I would have thought the Moderna would have been the booster for the J&J vaccine. What, um, what is the recommendation for people who receive J&J? I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, the recommendation for people who receive J&J is that they, if it's been two months since they've received J&J, that they can get any of the um, other vaccine doses as their booster. Um, so, so you're right. I'm sorry I missed that part of the question. No, that's all right. And, it, you know, and, and it's not clear if Ann got that Moderna booster, you know, more than six months. I'm not, I would guess it's more recent than six months so that then she wouldn't, but it was also about the mix and match thing you said as well. So it was, it was both of those issues. Uh, and we have Jeff in mid, uh, mid city LA. I've heard a number of military members express concern about getting the vaccine because they were required to get other vaccines as part of their service and were concerned it could interact in their bodies with other vaccines. And Jeff asks, is that a rational fear, as he heard from military members particularly about that concern? Um, that's a great, it's a very common question that I get from a lot of my patients, actually, too, is about can you receive multiple vaccines on the same visit um, at the same day? Um, and, and initially, I think we were trying to separate out vaccines so that, you know, when we were learning more about reactions after vaccines, we could make sure that we could say it was due to one versus the other but now that we have lots of data, you know, 200 million people getting um, vaccinated here in the U.S., 
Um, we can say that it's, it's totally fine to get the vaccines um, on the same day and there shouldn't be interaction. Um, you know, the immune system won't get confused. Um, you know, your arm might be a bit sore if you're getting, you know, vaccines, uh, multiple vaccines, but it shouldn't be, um, uh, there shouldn't be interaction for the immune system. Dr. Adamson, thank you so much for being with us today and updating us on COVID-19. We appreciate it. We'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. 